0: Tom continues his series through the book of 1st Corinthians. We'll be reading from chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly, It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never fails but if there are gifts of prophecy they will be done away if there are tongues they will cease if there is knowledge it will be done away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Heavenly Father, may we practice the full measure of love and be good followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and demonstrators of what your word says regarding love. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: I want you to assume for a moment that you've never seen this passage, especially that you've never seen verse 6. And I'm going to give you a a simple fill-in-the-blank statement here and then ask you to tell me how you'd supply the blank. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in blank. What would you say? If you didn't know the verse, what would you say? righteousness. Usually, it, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. You'd take the un off the beginning of the word and you'd, make, you'd see that's the antithesis, that's the opposite. Love, do, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in righteousness. But that's not where Paul goes here. In verse six he says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Now that's a very significant language. Rejoices with the truth. It might surprise you to hear that this is not the only passage in which Paul presents truth as the antithesis of unrighteousness. This is not the only passage in which Paul presents truth as the antithesis of unrighteousness. We'll look at a couple of others in a moment, but first we need to get on the same page as Paul when it comes to the definitions of the key words here, truth and unrighteousness. It's not easy these days to find an English dictionary that provides any help at all for understanding the meaning of words as they're used in the Bible. But this one works. This is the American Dictionary of the English Language, published in 1828. It's still available in print. You can borrow mine if you need to look something up or you can give me a call. It was written by a man who once said education is useless without the Bible. His name was Noah Webster. Uh, by the way, when you hear Merriam-Webster, that's only because the publishing house Merriam bought the rights to that Bible in 1843. It's still Noah Webster's dictionary, uh, to that uh, dictionary, I said Bible to that dictionary. He did, he did, by the way, do a New Testament translation. <laughs> Fortunately, you can still get this. You can also get to it online. Uh, you can find this dictionary online. Webster defines truth, listen to this, as exact accordance with, with that which is, or has been, or shall be. Exact accordance. In other words, it has to match exactly to be truth. And then he says, and then as an example, you know, dictionaries often provide examples of usage. His first example of usage of the word is John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Okay. Now, it makes sense that the revelation of the one whose name is I Am would that that truth, that revelation, would exactly conform with that which has been and is and shall be. The eternally existing God is the He's the foundation of all truth. He is the source of all truth. He is the ground of all truth. And Webster's clearest definition of the meaning of the word righteousness, before we get to unrighteousness, uh, is actually found in his explanation of the word right as it applies to morality or religion. He says right means just, equitable, accordant to the standard of truth and justice, the will of God. That alone is right in the sight of God which is consonant to his will or law, this being the only perfect standard of truth and justice. I dare you to find another English dictionary that would give you that definition. <laughs> Unless it's a Bible dictionary. Now I'd boil that down to, the, to, to this. For us as human beings, righteousness is conformity of the heart and behavior with the character of God. Okay? Okay. It's when our, our hearts and our lives match up with his character. Uh, that's righteousness. That's righteousness. If that's a good defini- definition of righteousness, then what is unrighteousness? Well, it's that which violates that standard, which falls short of that standard, which is the character of God. Now, how many of us have done that? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We're all we all start out unrighteous. Okay? How do we know that that's the case? How do we know what God's character requires and that we've fallen short of it? Well, beloved, we know because God has told us the truth. He has told us what has been, what is, what shall be. He has told us what conforms with his character. Fallen man is enslaved to unrighteousness, or to shorten that four-syllable word to one-syllable word, to sin, sin. The cure for mankind's attachment to, in fact, love of unrighteousness is not at its root for men to come to love righteousness. Let me say that again. The cure for mankind's unrighteousness is not for people to to come to love righteousness. To make a sinner stop rejoicing in sin and truly rejoice in righteousness, God must first cause the sinner to rejoice with truth. Okay? Okay. Now I said a moment ago that that this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, is not the only one that speaks of truth as the antithesis of unrighteousness. Uh, Romans 1, 16 through 19, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and even to the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now Paul does not say there that men suppress righteousness in unrighteousness. He says men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And all men apply that truth suppression not only to God's revealed written word that we know as special revelation, but also to God's general revelation through that which has been made. Paul says, even the invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature of God have been clearly seen. They've been clearly revealed to all mankind through what has been made. So that if men reject that revelation, they are without excuse. The fact that God has made clear what is true about himself and men have rejected it means that men had to work to get there. Right? It means, it means they had to deliberately shove truth under the rug, and that's exactly what it says. They suppressed the truth. doesn't say they don't know it. It doesn't say they, they just don't like it. It says they shove it under the rug in unrighteousness, refusing to acknowledge what God has clearly made known about himself. Now, after that indictment against all mankind for suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, The rest of Romans chapter 1 charts the downward spiral of man's delight in unrighteousness that that proceeded from man's refusal to honor God as God or give thanks. Paul goes on and he says, professing to be wise, they, all mankind, became fools. Professing to be wise, men became fools. You know, when men became the arbiters of their own truth, They became fools. You see any of that happening today? What followed from mankind's profession of their self-derived wisdom was idolatry, impurity, and the utter disgrace even of their own physical bodies. Any of that going on today? Paul goes on in that same chapter of Romans to say, Therefore... God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why did God give them over to lusts and impurity? He says again, he explains again why. In verse 25, For that is because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then he says, Amen. See, Paul does not say that God gave mankind over to lusts and degrading passions because we exchanged righteousness with unrighteousness. He says he did so because we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, Paul says that those who were going to be judged in the final judgment and and condemned are all who, quote, did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, you've got truth juxtaposed with unrighteousness. He doesn't say that that final judgment will be against all who did not take pleasure in righteousness but instead took pleasure in unrighteousness. He says it's all who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. I hope we're seeing a pattern here. What puts the un in front of righteousness, what paves the way for people to delight in sin instead of righteousness is not at its root the abandonment of righteousness. It is the abandonment of truth. That matters. We're going to talk this morning about the unbreakable triangle of love, truth, and righteousness. Love's at the top for a reason. First thing we've already seen is the antithesis of unrighteousness is truth. The second thing is that the engine of unrighteousness is truth denied. Isaiah 5 verses 18 to 21 is fabulous on this point. It's it's very pointed, it's very very, uh, vivid. There's a, a very powerful analogy here. Listen, woe to those who drag iniquity, who drag unrighteousness, with the cords of falsehood, untruth. And who drag sin as if with cart ropes. Who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. That what they're saying is, huh, if there's a God to worry about, why hasn't he shown himself? Same things in Second Peter 3, when people in our generation at the end times say, All things proceed as they always have. Where's God? Okay. And then through Isaiah, God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute dark for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Doesn't it sound like what we've already seen? professing to be wise, men became fools. The vivid image right at the beginning of that passage in Isaiah 5.18 speaks volumes about how all this kind of plays out. Woe to those who drag unrighteousness with cords of untruth and sin as if with cart ropes. Picture a four-wheeled cart, (laughs) sitting on a dirt road uh, anywhere in the vast flatlands of Texas. The cart is filled to the brim with unrighteousness. Okay? In order for the sin in that cart to go anywhere, the cart has to be pulled. Otherwise, it just sits there. In order for the sin to have any effect, it has to be propelled. And in Isaiah's analogy, what is the cart full of sin pulled by? Cart ropes of untruth. Cart ropes of of falsehood. Sin is propelled, it is made active, and it is made maliciously effective only when it is pulled by cords of lies, of falsehood. To put it another way, the engine of unrighteousness is truth denied. Without the denial of truth, sin cannot be made to look reasonable. Without the denial of truth, sin cannot be justified. Without the denial of truth, the grotesque ugliness of sin can never be made to look attractive. Think about Satan's strategy to bring about the very first sin. The sin that enslaved all mankind for all generations to sin. <coughs> Satan began his enticement of, of Adam and Eve not by first pointing out the desirability of that which God had forgiven, but by denying the truth that God had declared. Satan never actually had to even say to Eve, Look at how beautiful that fruit is. His entire focus was on, enti- and by the way, Eve came to that herself. The focus of Satan's Satan's enticement was on denying the truth that God had graciously declared. Of course, the first element of Satan's denial of God's truth was to overturn God's design for headship and submission by using Eve as the instrument of Adam's fall. But think about how, how Satan brought about that fall. His first step, as he was roping Eve in, was to distort to distort what God had graciously declared. Satan said to Eve, did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Words are important. Words are the vessels of truth and of untruth. Satan knows that better than most of us. What God had actually said to Adam, of course, before Eve ever existed, was from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Satan's words very skillfully zeroed in on the one and only thing in, that, in all of God's creation that was forbidden to man turning Eve's focus away from the truth about everything else in that marvelous place that God had lovingly prepared for his image bearers and had filled to overflowing with good things made freely available to them. Satan moved without hesitation from that distortion of the truth to the first bald-faced lie ever presented to mankind. Satan said to Eve, You shall not Surely die. You shall not surely die. In other words, God was lying. The one who was lying, of course, was Satan. Satan then compounded the denial of the truth by making God out to be an ungracious withholder of blessing who cared only to protect his own turf. Satan said, eat for God knows that in the day that you eat from that, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what Satan did. By the way, before that, man knew about good. I said, and I said, God, they're knowing good and evil. Man knew about good firsthand. Satan, Satan made it an attractive idea to know about evil firsthand. How's that worked out? It was only under the dark veil of that denial of God's gracious, clearly revealed truth. It was only of the dark veil of that lie now embraced by Eve that she looked and quote saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise. Sin looks really good once you've dispensed with truth. All you have to, and, and you have to dispense with truth in order to make sin look good. The engine of unrighteousness is to deny truth. That matters. It matters, it, it matters a lot if we want to understand what's going on all around us and if we want to be useful to God to address what's going on all around us. On the other hand, the engine of unrighteousness is truth embraced. And actually, let me back up on that slide. The the engine of righteousness is truth embraced. What truth? Well, uh, the only truth that God calls truth, and that's a big deal right there. Men call all kinds of things truth. We've talked about this some before. If something's factual, that doesn't make it truth. Truth is about God. Truth is what God has revealed okay? Truth is ancient. It's as old as God is. Truth is unchangeable by definition. There's a a short message that we did back at the congregational meeting called Five Truths Regarding Truth. The Five Truths About Truth. It's still on the website if you want to look at that. So the truth that he's talking about here is the only truth. The only thing that qualifies as truth. My truth, your truth, those don't exist. Their truth doesn't exist. The truth comes from God. In his high priestly prayer on the night before he died to pay the eternal debt of our sin to God, Jesus prayed to his Father on behalf of his beloved disciples and on behalf of all who would come to faith through their witness, including everyone in this room who belongs to Jesus Christ today. He said to his Father, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, to sanctify means to make holy. It means to set something apart, someone apart from all that is common, fallen, and cursed, and to set that someone apart to that which is sacred, undefiled untouched by sin and the curse means to set apart to God so Jesus says to his father he asks his father to sanctify his redeemed one his beloved ones in the truth and he says your word is truth okay so truth the truth which is the engine the driver of righteousness of godliness of holiness is the truth that God has revealed in his written word and it is the truth that God has revealed in His incarnate Word, Jesus. His Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We got to behold the character of God in God the Son. And it is the truth revealed in Jesus, that is the clearest and most perfect revelation of God that mankind has ever seen. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Ephesians 4, Paul says, truth is in Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In 1 Corinthians thirteen six, Paul says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth love rejoices with the truth the root verb here to rejoice in the second half of the verse is the same as in the first half but it has a prefix and the prefix means together with together with and that prefix speaks of two things shared participation and shared relationship. Shared participation and shared relationship. It's just three little Greek letters, S-U-N. That prefix shows up three times in one verse, Romans 8, 16, and 17, two verses. Romans 8, 16, and 17, I'm gonna give you these so you can get an idea what this shared participation, shared relationship thing is about. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with, literally, heirs together with Christ. If indeed we suffer together with Him so that we may also be glorified together with Him. Three times that little prefix is stuck on the beginning of word. Together with. Now, in every case in those two verses, in every case, the together with part implies both shared participation and shared relationship. It is because we've been brought into eternal union with Jesus that we are now heirs together with Jesus, who must suffer together with Jesus in order to be glorified together with Jesus. Now, it's especially enlightening to look at a couple of other instances of, in the New Testament of, of the exact word that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Rejoice together with Rejoice together with. That word shows up in two back-to-back parables of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. It's actually implied in the parable that comes right after that, which is the the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15:4, and these are short, so let me read this. Starting at 15.4, "'What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep "'and has lost one of them, "'does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture "'and go after the one which is lost until he finds it?' "'And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, "'rejoicing, And, and when he comes home, "'he calls together his friends and his neighbors, "'and he says to them, "'Rejoice together with me, "'for I have found this sheep which was lost.'" I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And without skipping a beat, then Jesus goes into the next parable. He says, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and she says to them, rejoice, together with me for I've found the coin which I had lost in the same way I say to you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents Paul used that very same word rejoice together with in 1st Corinthians twelve twenty-six, when he was talking about the spiritual gifts and then he was talking about members of the body and he says if one member suffers all the members suffer together with it if one member is honored, all the members rejoice together with it. Rejoice together. Now, and, and so what he's saying is, it's, it is those who are fellow body parts of the body of Christ who rejoice together when one part, one member, is shown honor. Now, why did I spend all that time on this rejoice together with thing? Here's here's where this comes together. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Paul says that love rejoices together with the truth. Not in the truth, but together with the truth. What's the relationship that's shared in in that verse? Beloved, it's our relationship with the truth. The powerful implication of this wording is that we who are the beloved of God have been brought into relationship with the truth. We are of the truth. This takes us back to one of the things I mentioned last things I mentioned last week and that is the redeemed nature of every believer. In John 18:37 Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you say correctly that I am a king Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. (laughs) And then he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In Ephesians 4, 20 and 21, this is amazing, Paul says, the truth by which we have heard Christ and been taught in him, that truth is in Jesus. And then a few verses later, he says that we who have learned and heard Christ Or to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God has brought every one of us who trusts in Christ into a new unbreakable relationship with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. God has recreated us in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You know what that means? That means that righteousness and holiness and truth, those are our nature. Those are our nature. They're not foreign to our nature. They're not some leap we have to make to draw in so that we can somehow experience them. They are our nature. Truth and righteousness were once uh, both as foreign to us as the atmosphere of Saturn. We had no connection to truth or righteousness. Like all of fallen mankind, we were incapable of hearing and believing the truth. Read read Jesus' words to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He said, you're of of, of the father of lies. You can't receive the truth. You think that was just the Pharisees? We were all lost and dead in our sin. There was none of us who was able to receive the truth. But now by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God has brought us into everlasting, firsthand, personal relationship with the truth. We are now of the truth. It's not against our nature to rejoice together with the truth. It is our nature in Christ. These aren't platitudes, guys. These aren't just pleasant-sounding words. This is God telling us who we are. God telling us what he has made us. You and I need to know this, and we need to count it as true moment by moment. At the end of the last message, I mentioned that the word hypocrisy takes on a dramatically different meaning for the children of God than for those who do not belong to Christ. That's because of the radical change in our nature that God has brought about. The word hypocrisy is a, it's a transliteration of the Greek word hypokritos. It's a word associated with a theatrical production in which an actor literally wears a mask in order to put on a different identity than the one that's true of him, to present to the audience a different person than the one who's behind the mask. Beloved, Satan is bent on getting you and me as the children of God to believe that because we still stumble, because we still struggle against the enticements of sin, that means that it is hypocrisy for us even to bother trying to do righteous things. You with me? Let me say it again. Satan is bent on getting you and me to believe that because we still struggle and stumble with the enticements of sin in the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, that that means it is hypocrisy for us to, to even bother trying to do righteous things. We should just own up to our inability to actually live righteous lives, and we should enjoy living the way we want to. Who wants to spend... Their short earthly life, trying with all their might to do what they're incapable of doing. There are too many blood bought Christians, children of God, who have bought into that crippling, crippling lie. Some of you may have bought into that lie. Because those Christians continue to struggle with some of the same sins that they've struggled with for years, they see righteousness as foreign to their true nature and unrighteousness as hardwired into their DNA. Persuaded by the pernicious lie from the pit of hell, they conclude that their sin is greater than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Eventually, they just give up on godliness and on usefulness to God. Beloved, Satan can't have your soul. The best he can do is make you useless. Until if you, belo- if you belong to Christ, and if you don't belong to Christ, he's already got your soul until you put your faith in Jesus. But if you belong to Christ through faith in him alone, Satan can't have you. He can only mess with you. Amen. And what he wants to do is convince you that you are incapable of righteousness. For us who have been made the citizens of the right side up kingdom of Jesus Christ, the exact opposite is true of us. Truth and righteousness have been made our nature as those who have been brought into union with the one who is the truth and who is perfectly righteous. When we proclaim the truth and when we do that which is righteous, we are not contradicting our true nature. We're not putting on a mask and pretending to be who we aren't. We are displaying who we in fact are who God has made us. We need to embrace that reality, guys, because that frees us up to live the way we have been enabled and equipped to live. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I talked a lot about two points of that unbreakable triangle that I mentioned early on, truth and righteousness, but at the top of that triangle is the attribute of God that actually causes us to rejoice in truth and to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that attribute is agape, is the boundless, measureless love of God. The point of these four verses, uh, these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 verses four through seven is to set before us what godly love actually does. What it does, his love working in our in us makes his truth our delight, and makes his righteousness our hunger. It was once one weekend when I was a very young believer. I was with a group of guys at a college. It was a denomination that was pretty works oriented and kind of taught that we're justified by faith. We're also justified by our works. and And I was with them in this field in this beautiful park. And they were, they were saying, isn't it wonderful on a beautiful day like this to, to see the righteousness of God that we display, to look, at, to look at what God's doing in us, in our hearts. And you know, there, in one sense, I, I kind of got that. But in another sense, every time I look at Jesus and then turn and look at me, I'm not impressed with me. It's not that God's not doing good things in me. It's just that when I look at Jesus, there's no comparison. I don't rejoice in righteousness that I see in me, beloved. I rejoice in the righteousness I see in Christ. And I can always rejoice. I always rejoice in the truth. God's love working through us makes us delight in proclaiming his truth to others, both lost and saved, and in adorning that truth with righteousness. In Ephesians 4, Paul commands every one of us who belongs to Christ to speak the truth in love to one another. That means that we speak the word of God to one another and to everybody else. And we do so driven by love. Jeremiah 23, 28, God said to his faithful prophet, "'Let him who has my word speak my word in truth.'" Let him who has my word speak my word in truth. We're not supposed to be silent. The single most loving thing that you or I will ever do to another human being is to speak the truth of God to that person in love. And the most unloving thing that you and I will ever do to another human being is deny or compromise or withhold the truth of God. This godless world uh, and far too many people who call themselves Christians are zealously convinced that you and I should be soft-peddling truth in order to be loving. They tell us we have to be very careful not to impose our beliefs on anyone else because that would be hateful. We must be very careful never to offend those who disagree with us. It's worse than that. The world now demands of us that we deny the very existence of any truth except the pathetic imitation of truth that comes from each individual person. Which of the approved ambassadors of God in the Bible ever did that? Which of them ever adjusted or compromised or was silent about the truth of God under the guise of being loving? Jonah withheld the truth for a little while. Was that because he was loving? No. God made him useful anyway. He made him talk. Took a big fish to bring him about brothers and sisters making another person's life as comfortable and as unchallenged as possible until they go to hell is not loving in revelation 1 jesus told john that local churches like ours are his appointed lampstands we're the bearers of the light of jesus in the world outfits just like this one in second corinthians 4 verse 6 paul said that we the redeemed of god are the bearers in these fragile jars of clay of the greatest treasure this world will ever know. The worth of the vessels is only in that which we bear. The priceless treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul told Timothy that we, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, are the pillar and the support of the truth. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus warned the church in Ephesus that if they did not repent and return to their first love, to their first love doing the deeds that they had done when that love had controlled them, he would remove their lampstand. In Matthew 10, verses 24 to 28, Jesus said to his beloved disciples, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Why? Because that's loving. He came to seek and save the lost and he left us here to keep doing that. We cannot stop speaking the truth of God in love to the lost, to those who'll listen, to those who won't listen, no matter what temporary thing it costs us, even if that temporary thing is our physical lives. And we cannot stop speaking the truth of God to one another in love so that we may grow up in maturity and strength to one new man, the head of the body, Jesus Christ I said in the first message I would always bring this back to Jesus and that's what I mean to do here in the last couple of minutes last minute or so Jesus Jesus is our perfect example in all this Jesus rejoiced in the truth he spoke every word that his father had given him to speak he spoke it with authority not with timidity not with apology with boldness his words encouraged humbled offended and angered but he who came to seek and save the lost spoke the truth in love and he rejoiced in righteousness he did every righteous and loving act that his father had given him to to do to the point of the supreme act of love the greatest act of love this world has ever seen and that is that he went to the cross in our place to bear our sin debt and to pay for it so that we could have relationship for all eternity with God It is His love shed abroad in our hearts that fulfills this calling to us, calling in us and through us. We love because He first loved us. It is only by abiding in Him that the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in us. (laughs) And love is the anchor of every beautiful facet of that fruit. In John 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to his disciples, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. What makes you and me rejoice in the truth and hunger and thirst for righteousness? The love that God has lavished upon us and has made ours for all eternity. Dear Father, may your boundless love have its way with us, causing us day by day to rejoice in your truth, to proclaim your truth boldly to others in godly love. May your boundless love have its way with us, causing us daily to display the righteousness of Christ to others, to the glory of our Savior and Master. It's in his incomparable name and for his glory that we ask these things. Amen.